My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? My uncle abused me. The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Hi, my name is Mandy Zucker and I'm the host of the morning meeting. Today's guest is Jenny Lisk. She's an award-winning author and widowed mom who's dedicated to helping widowed parents increase their family's well-being. Her book, Future Widow, and her show, The Widowed Parent Podcast, bring much-needed resources to widowed parents, helping them feel less lost and alone. And I'm really happy to have her on the show today. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Meeting Podcast. I'm very happy to have you. Hi, Mandy. Great to see you again. I'm glad to be here. We know each other. We're both work National Alliance for Grieving Children's Membership Committee, and I've had a chance to read your book, and I am so grateful that you were willing to put those words onto paper. I highly recommend everybody read it. We'll talk well, a thank you. about that, too. Thank you uh, for reading it, and thank you for saying that. Appreciate yeah. it. So why don't you tell everyone who doesn't know you why you're here? <laughs> what brought you to the space? Sure. Yes. So, um, well, I'm here because I'm a widowed parent. My husband, Dennis, died a little over five years ago, and he had glioblastoma, which is a very, very aggressive form of brain cancer. I had never heard of glioblastoma. This was like shocking, sudden. He had been feeling a little bit dizzy. Okay. Sometimes you feel dizzy, right? Sometimes you feel whatever random things. I thought we were going to go into the primary care doctor and, you know, some little medication change, some little drink some more water, you know, whatever. And he says, let's get an MRI. And he says, uh, there's something very wrong with your brain. I don't want to scare you. It might be glioblastoma. I'm like, glioblastoma, what is that, right? Not even um, scary when you don't know what it is. Right, yeah, right. But he said, I think you need to know what you might be dealing with. Um, you need to go to the neurosurgeon tomorrow. And so we go to the neurosurgeon the next day because the first guy was just primary care, right? I mean, we just went in with a minor everyday issue. And I should say that, you know, he'd been feeling a little dizzy and I was noticing some confusion, but it was sporadic, right? It was, and he wasn't passing out and he wasn't having seizures and he wasn't, you know, unable to function, but there was some really weird confusion that increased over a period of about 10 days. The neurosurgeon who we see on day two then says, uh, okay, we need to do brain surgery tomorrow, the next day. And the objective was to get a biopsy to see if it really was cancerous because at that point it was just a brain tumor. Yeah, well, right. I mean, just right. So no brain tumors are good. Some of them are worse than others. Some of them are more aggressive than others. Some of them are more, you know, can be dealt with better than others. And there are different types. Of course, I didn't know any of this at the time, right? But anyway, they had to figure out what type of tumor it was and specifically whether it was cancerous or not. And they also wanted to, quote unquote, remove as much as they could, right? Now, you'd like to think, you know, if you have a tumor somewhere else, um, maybe a, a, in your breast, you could reasonably expect, you hope that you could cut out the whole thing, right? And deal with it that way, plus the other treatments and stuff. But at least that you would might start with removing the whole thing. Well, as it turns out, the type of tumor he had was not the type that you could just cut out. It was just woven throughout all the fabric. And so long story short, they biopsied it. They said it's glioblastoma. And that started eight months of chaos, anticipatory grief, 
and stress and started me on what I knew would end up as being a widowed parent. My kids at the time were um, nine and 11. That's a lot to take in. Yes. Well, it was a lot to take in at the time, right? I sat there in the primary care doctor's office. You know, he was on the table and the doctor was on the swivel stool and I was on the little visitor's bench. And I leaned back and I closed my eyes and I said, okay, wait a minute. Are we really having this discussion? Like, this is not possible. This is not our life. You know, life was normal not very long ago. He was working, I was working, the kids were going to school, we were going to soccer, et cetera, et cetera. We had a dog and a cat and it was just life with two kids and a family. And all of a sudden he's saying, your brain has a big problem. Made you decide. So you had this, you know, I'm sure extraordinary and normal life prior to brain tumors that you weren't sharing with the world. What made you decide that this that you should share this with the world. And, and I think I mentioned, I'm so grateful that you did, but why did you, why did you think that that was important that other people understand this story? You know, and I guess I kind of eased into it. Like I didn't expect that the end of the story was going to be a book and a podcast. It started with Caring Bridge, which your listeners may have heard of Caring Bridge. It's an online free blogging platform, basically, that's usually used by people in cases of, you know, medical crisis or death. Mm -hmm. Um, to communicate with the friends and the family and the people who want to know how to help or follow along on updates if someone's in the hospital after a big act. We're at the hospital sitting in the waiting room for his first surgery that first day I talked about. And my sister says, why don't you start a caring bridge? And I said, no, 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 no. You know, that just seems unnecessary. I will just send some text updates and some email updates and it'll be fine, right? Not really realizing how much was in front of us and also not really realizing or appreciating how just how many people cared and wanted to help and, you know, and, and would appreciate being in the loop. And I pretty quickly realized that, you know, text updates when you go copy paste copy paste copy paste blah, 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 was just going to get unwieldy really fast so my sister you know I said fine why don't you create the caring bridge she created it she made the first post which was like you know he's in surgery and we're waiting you know something basic and pretty quickly after that I took it over it was important to me to be the one to communicate with our people right and and it, you know this so this was the friends and family here and not here and interestingly people from all walks of, I mean, all stages of our life, right? Because of Facebook, I'm connected now with, you know, high school people, college people, people from when we lived in New York, people from when we lived in Portland, and, you know, now people from here, as well as, you know, my colleagues and his colleagues, et cetera, et cetera. It, it was, it was, you know, a good collection of people who were super kind. And I just felt like it was almost easier for me to keep people in the loop than not keep them in the loop, which I know a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of times people will keep it in a tighter circle, right? But I I just felt like, you know, I was going to be bumping into people at the kids' school and the sidelines of the soccer games, and I knew it was going to be awkward, and I knew they weren't going to know what to say, and I knew they were going to want to be supportive, and I just felt like if I could share, it would reduce the questions, reduce the awkwardness, reduce the I bump into you and then they say, how are you? And then I'm like, oh my God, where do I start? And let me just share out, you know, what's happening. And so it started with more logistical stuff, right? He's out of surgery. He's eating. Maybe he'll come home tomorrow, that kind of stuff. But as time went on, I started reflecting and writing more what you might call like 
blog post type things or reflective posts, it became important to me to have a way to communicate. You know, my world shrunk really fast to like the four walls of my house and the four walls of the hospital. That was my world. I didn't realize until I started doing it that having an opportunity that that computer with that caring bridge site gave me a chance to poke out of that very restrictive world a little bit and start sharing out. And I also realized that, you know, so many people were supportive that I could share out what was helpful and things that would make like help people help us. And people actually commented like, you know, thank you for letting us bring you this food or thank you for showing us how to support, you know, a friend who's, who's in a crisis or grieving. So many people want to help yeah, and they don't know how. And then sometimes they end up doing the wrong thing. No, what to do. Yeah. You see pretty quickly that, cause I'd never been on this side, right? I'd been on the other side and I'm sure done lots of things wrong and been uncomfortable myself and not knowing what to say. And therefore Aaron may be on the side of not saying anything. And when you're on this side of the, of the situation, you pretty quickly see like, wow, some people really get it. They must have had some experiences before where they learned something about how to be supportive. Some people aren't afraid to talk about it. Some people freak out. So, you know, it's very interesting to see. And I thought, you know, I could, I could help here, help people feel more comfortable by sharing, you know, and being an example of, of the way this community was supporting us and helping, you know, people hopefully, you know, learning from, from that example, if you will. And some of it was personal interest. I mean, I, it's tiring to have conversations over and over again, the same conversation, this update, this update, this happened, but I can write it once, share it out. And that's going to help me, you know, this is a little bit self-interested, help me to conversations that might be awkward or uncomfortable. Well, I think, you know, you say self-interested, like it's a bad thing, like <laughs> self-preservation. That's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're taking good care of yourself. You did have, you know, and still have two children. You have, you know, for them as well as for yourself, you have to make sure that you're getting what you need. So yeah. advocating for that is so important. I found that I, in, it, you know, it's kind of interesting. The ability to reflect as we were going, but, you know, by, or the opportunity to reflect through writing some of these posts, right? That some of them are factual and, and logistical and some of them are reflective, I found that I would, you know, maybe through the course of a day, as I'm walking around and going to the hospital and doing this and that, I may be re reflecting in my mind, like, oh, here's something I'm thinking about. Here's a post that I could compose next. Here's some stuff that I want to share, right? It was starting to help me process. So this is where like anticipatory grief comes in to play where or I, I would even like go walking maybe and start and be thinking about composing a post. And then maybe I finally would get a chance that night after everybody was in bed to sit down and write it out and post it. And then, you know, and I read everybody's comments, although I decided early on, I wasn't going to respond to any Caring Bridge comments because I knew, because there were a lot of comments and I knew that the burden of responding would be too high. And I also didn't want to respond to some and not others because I didn't want anybody to feel like their comments weren't appreciated and their support wasn't appreciated. And I felt like oh, if I can't respond to all of them. And so I would frequently say, you know, I'm reading all of your comments. Thank you so much. But I just I made that choice not to not to respond. The opportunity to think and reflect in writing as I was living this turned out to be helpful. I am amazed at the awareness that you had so early on about you know, what was going to be good for you. And I'm just thinking about, you know, the fact that you did have two young children who are, you know, it's been five years. So they're in the life of a child. That's a long time. I wonder if there are things that, you know, even just like I'm listening to you, like, you know, using the word anticipatory grief was probably not something you were even aware of at that time. Oh, no. 
no, no, no. no. <laughs> obviously learned a lot. Um, yes, yes. Writing a book was uh, an education. But I'm just wondering, like, were there things that you wish you knew earlier on as your children are now, you know, getting older and bit of advice that you were either given or something that you wish you had sort of anticipated earlier, knowing that you were going to have these children who are growing up without their dad? Oh, for sure. In fact, that's part of the reason, or maybe the main reason that I wrote the book was I felt so lost and alone and I didn't know what I didn't know and I didn't know who could help me figure out what I didn't know and you know it's interesting early on in this you know so he had the first surgery and a couple of weeks later we get the biopsy back and so we go in and they say okay it's cancer and I asked the doctor and she says well I don't know how long it'll be but average would be 13 months you know life expectancy from this point and so and I kind of my gut feeling was it probably be less just because of the number of complications and everything he was having but anyway I did a carrying bridge post and this is where I maybe should have thought a little more first I posted the results right and it was just very brief like we got the results it's grade four glioblastoma I didn't have the heart to like write what that meant or anything I'm like if anybody they can google it so my friend called me and she said you know have you told your kids yet and I said well no and I, and I think she could tell I was kind of hoping to just like avoid that whole discussion, right? And she's like, okay, here's the thing. Everybody in, you know, she's, well, here's what she said. Our kids asked us, you know, we told our kids tonight, the news that it was glioblastoma. And they said, is he going to die? And, and we weren't going to lie to them. So we said, you know, we don't know when, but yes, he will. And she said, this conversation has got to be happening at other dinner tables in the school community tonight. So she said, you need to talk to your kids tonight. They need to hear this from you. They need to not hear this tomorrow on the playground. And I'm like, okay, she's right. But really, like, how do you do this? Right. So I told them and related around the same time, another friend whose husband had also died of glioblastoma told me that some advice she had gotten was to always be honest with the kids. And to share with them what you know, and you know, if you don't know something, you can say, I don't know, or this is what we're doing to find out, or, you know, we'll know more in three weeks after X happens or whatever. And so I, I'm glad she told me that because I did take that approach throughout, um, sharing what I knew and I didn't always know, right. But it was, it was hard, but what I, I feel like I didn't screw that part up. And, and, and by the way, I've found out since then you know, so I started this podcast and I'm interviewing all these experts and one of the, oh gosh, probably one of the most, so Lauren Schneider, who works at our house um, in Los Angeles, and I think you know her as well. She gave a webinar for the NAGC right after I started my podcast. And she talked about how important it was to be honest with kids about, you know, the cause of death. If it's some, you know, some people are, are tempted to make up a cover story if it's a suicide and they say it's a heart attack and she really articulated um, how important it is to be honest with kids about these difficult topics and when I say kids I mean teenagers and kids the trust between the surviving parent and the young person is so important and then eventually they'll find out and then you know the ruptures that bond and then not only is you know important for its own sake but also as a, a pattern and a, and a basis for all their future relationships with other people right So I heard this uh, and eventually I got to interview her on my show, which was terrific. And this is a long way of saying, this is one of the things that I've learned since then. Mm -hmm. So that confirmed, you know, I was glad that I had taken that approach of sharing with them during his illness, what I knew and, but what I didn't do, what I wish I had done with what I have since learned is that I should have also 
tried to open the conversations on like the emotional side. So like, for example, um, we were playing, sorry, you know, the kids board game, sorry. You know, we tried to do stuff like have family game time and family movie time. Right. So we're playing, sorry. And because of his brain cancer and his confusion, um, he really wasn't able to move the pieces correctly and playing quote unquote, but my nine-year-old was saying, dad, you know, I think you should move here. Do you want me to move your piece for you? Yeah. Okay. So she was really, you know, jumping into that kind of like how you would teach a small kid to play a game for the first time and you're coaching them through it. But this is the nine-year-old coaching her dad. Big role reversal, right? So, and the thing was, the game was very pleasant. Nobody was crying. You know, it was, I mean, fun is kind of the wrong word. It was a nice way to pass the time for a little while for us to do something together. Okay. Yay. Victory, right? What I didn't do, what I wish I had done, what I would do now that I know better, I should have gone back, you know, that night or the next day and looped back with my daughter and said, how was that for you? Like, wow, that must have been weird. You were coaching dad. It's kind of a role reversal. And just open that door. And she might have wanted to talk about it. She might have not wanted to talk about it. Either way is okay. But now I realize me opening that door and letting her know that those conversations were okay, even if she didn't want to talk about it then, if she wanted to come back in a week and say, hey, you know, I was thinking about that again, or even if it wasn't that, even if she never wanted to talk about that game, the next time something comes up, she would have been more likely to feel like it was okay. Because one of the things, you know, now that I've learned, the experts I've interviewed tell me, um, is that kids often are afraid of upsetting their surviving parent. And it could be kids, could be teens, could be college age kids, mm-hmm. right? They don't want to burden or upset or whatever their surviving parent. And so they don't bring up something. Therefore, they might be struggling with something internally that may the parent probably would be very happy to discuss. Happy is maybe the wrong word, but you know, glad to have that conversation and be able to support them. And, you know, and so you're not, they're not struggling with it alone. That's the kind of thing. So it's like, I wasn't, I wasn't ever dishonest. So I got that one, right. (laughs) But that second step of like opening those emotional doors throughout, I think I was so glad that, you know, logistically the kids were quote unquote fine. Now, obviously they weren't actually fine. Their dad was dying. Logistically, they were going to school and people were bringing us dinner and someone took them to soccer and, you know, and so things were kind of handled on that level. And it was all I could do to just make sure that stuff was happening. And I didn't know better. So I'm not beating myself up. But one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to share that for other people who are or will be in these kind of situations to to hopefully have some of the benefit of you know learning you know what my uh what things that i wish i had done differently maybe somebody can not make some of the same mistakes a lot of parents are sort of in a similar boat with you that they want you know those are the first things that you think of right like as far as a hierarchy of needs you're going to make sure that they're fed sure, sure. that they have somewhere to sleep and if that's all you can do, then you're doing awesome. That's right. great. But ultimately, we do want to have honest, open communication with our kids. I think most parents would say that they want their kids to be able to come to them if they have an issue, if they're scared or confused or sad. And your kids were young. So, mm. you know, you could think like, well, they're too young. I'm not going to, you know, they don't know about feelings yet. Um, oh, no. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> You know, some parents may be thinking that like, I right. can, oh, yeah, 
I can wait until they're older to really like get into this. You're missing an opportunity to create that foundation of trust and open and honest communication. It's never too late to go back and do it. If, you know, somebody's listening thinking, oh my gosh, maybe now I should have done X or Y or Z. You can always go back even and say, look, you know, I was doing the best I could. I thought that, you know, doing this was, was the right thing, but now I realize whatever, you know, I mean, even if you own it up, own up to it, you know, you know, if somebody told a kid that their parent had a heart attack and they died by suicide. Okay. Well, it's unfortunate now to be in this situation. It would be much, much better to correct it as soon as possible and say, look, I was trying to protect you. I didn't know that that actually I should have done, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, but because, okay, because at this point now, it's kind of like there's that Chinese proverb, I think like the best time to plant a tree was a hundred years ago or something, but the second best time is today. So, okay. So now if you're wishing you could have gone back and, and handled something differently, well, the next best thing to do is to open that can of worms now and, and handle it rather than saying, well, somehow magically in five years or 10 years or next year or next week, it'll be better. Um, it's much better. I think to, it's hard. I'm not, I'm not, you know, it, these are not, I'm not saying these are fun conversations or easy, but I think it's better to try to deal with it sooner rather than later. And it also models for our kids. We all make mistakes mm-hmm. and we can all review them. We can process all of that and yeah. that's okay. So even right. mom, and yeah. if you model for your kids, like, I wish I had done it differently yeah. than when they, you know, get a bad grade on a test or, uh, right. you know, do something that they weren't supposed to do, they'll be able to say to you, I didn't do something the way I should have done it. Right, right. What is it they say when you know better, you do better or something like, right? I mean, mm-hmm. right. So now I have additional information. So now I can have some of these conversations, you know, and just tackling it head on and say, look, I was doing the best I could. And I, I really wish I had known and I would have done X. And the kid's probably going to say, it's okay, mom, you were doing the best you could. I've had those conversations, you know, in my house. And I feel, then I feel better. Been five years, your kids are now 16? 16, almost 17 and, uh, and 14. So yeah, they'll both be in freshman and senior in high school this year, coming year. Two pretty big transitional years for them as well. And I'm just wondering about high school graduation and starting a new school. You know, those are transitions and transitions often bring up just feelings of loss. And, um, and what have you learned over the past five years about transitions in general? Have you thought about like, talking to your kids about some of the things that will be coming up after high school graduation or switching, you know, into a new school and all of the changes that occur. You know, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that, you know, any of these things that are not going to magically solve themselves. Like, you know, if I'm worried about X or Y or Z, it's better to say, Hey, let's talk about this. Right. Then to just stick my head in the sand and think that it's going to somehow resolve itself or not happen or whether the topic is grief, whether the topic is whatever it's like, I used to very much. And now I try to be aware of this. Like you don't want to bring something up because you like, if everybody seems like they're happy and you bring up something and it's like, all of a sudden, Oh no, I'm not going to make them sad. Right. right? But okay. So finally I figured out that's not really the case, you know, right. and maybe just because in right in this moment, it's kind of like, you know, people to say to widowed people, you know, oh, they don't want to say something because you don't want to remind them, 
well okay of course i didn't forget that my husband died so if you if you say oh i'm so sorry to hear about your husband it's not gonna remind me oh i forgot that he died how dare you remind me right <laughs> so you know if if um you know if the kid is going into a new school or a new situation um to that it's important and that it's okay and that it's even better to be proactive about discussing the things that you might be anticipating or worrying about or thinking about um rather than just kind of i don't know crossing my fingers and hoping that it doesn't come to pass a very good point and um i think you know preparation is key so knowing that you know there are transitions coming up it's a great thing to talk about you said it before like knowing they may not take the bait they might be like yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Such right. That's a good point, right? It, they might not want to talk about it at all. They might not want to talk about it right now. There is still value in opening that door, opening that door, opening that door, because even if no discussion happens, mom, that's dumb. I don't want to talk about that. It doesn't matter. I mean, ideally you'd talk about it fine, but just opening the door yep. lets them know that you're there, you're connected, you care that the door is still open so that then they can come back to you at whatever point if they want to raise that issue or a different issue exactly. it's just kind of sending those messages has more value than 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 maybe it seems on the surface how are you i mean how are you doing what what's been helpful to you i mean you've obviously learned a lot past 5 years just from your experience and you know your podcast and your book but how do you cope on a regular basis? What are some things that have been helpful to you? Early on, I, I found a great therapist. Um, and that was, well, I had never seen a therapist before that, actually. And I, and I went to her because I had read this book about like instrumental grievers and intuitive grievers. And I was like having all these flashbacks. And I was like, oh, I got to stop. Like, the, I'm trying to work and I'm having flashbacks and the urn's 10 feet away from me. And I'm like, right. And it's very distracting. So I contacted her. And so interestingly, what started out to be like grief discussions or grief reason for going to her became more like life right because eventually you start to talk to someone you get to know them and and then you realize that some of the things in your mind are not you know it it is the grief part but it's also all these other things right and thinking about you know one of the things that I thought about early on is like he got like half of a life half I don't know 44 right maybe that's half I'll call it half. Mm -hmm. Seems reasonable. That was tragic. And I can't undo that. No. I can't. I, there's no magic wand that, that I can fix that tragedy and, and put his life back. I am still alive, hopefully for another 50 years. So now I have to make a choice and I get to make a choice. It's both. What am I going to do for the next 50 years? And I just really started thinking about like, if I kind of half-heartedly live out the rest of my life because of this thing that's happened now in my story that would kind of like compound the tragedy that would kind of be doubly tragic like if my response to that is now my life is destroyed too and i'm not saying this is immediate like oh your husband died yesterday now today you have to be like yay what am i doing but i'm saying you know coming to this kind of perspective over some time has helped me tremendously to think about i it is in my power and my responsibility to choose. What am I going to do? And this is actually one of the really, you know, in working with this therapist and having hours and hours of, sometimes I'd sit in her office for three hours, <laughs> but I should have just said, let's have a walking meeting because, you know, three hours in a chair can be kind of, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but um, in one of these meetings, I, you know, I always had notes, you know, stuff I wanted to make sure I mentioned and ask about and bring up. And so I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, okay, I had this big aha recently. She's like, oh, what is it? Right. <laughs> and I'm like, if I don't own my own life, who else will? And she looks at me like, yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, for me, this was like, aha, this was like, you know, I don't know who else I thought would own my life. Not like I thought somebody else owned it, but just the clarity that, no, I do. I, I own, what am I going to do? How am I going to live? What are my choices? How am I going to spend the next 50 years? Or you know what? Maybe less than 50 years because, you know, everybody listening has had some kind of grief here of somebody who died sooner than they probably expected them to. Right. So we all know that I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Hopefully I've got 50 more years. What am I going to do? And it's very interesting. I read a lot of years ago, probably 30 years ago, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. He, so he was, he was in one of the concentration camps in, in Nazi Germany. Terrible circumstances. And all of his freedoms were taken away as the prisoners. He was not one of the ones who was killed there. He ended up surviving and getting you know, one of the liberations and went on to become a practicing psychiatrist or psychologist or something. But anyway, he's there. All of his freedoms for every single thing are taken away as an inmate of this concentration camp, but except one. And he realized that nobody could take away his power to choose his response to his circumstances. They could make his circumstances horrible. And they did. Starving, freezing, misery, all these things. They, his essential freedom that they could not take away was how he was going to respond to that. And I read this, it was, like I said, it was probably 30 years ago. I don't know if it was in college or after or before. And I don't even know how I happened to read it. I don't think it was like an assigned book in college or something. I don't, somehow I stumbled across it. And I don't even remember what happened in most of the book, but that's the part I remember. And little did I know 30 years ago that that concept would end up being important to me. You know, you're 20 years old or something. You don't think, oh, someday I'm going to have two kids and I'm going to have a husband and then he's going to die. And then I'm going to be a widowed parent. You don't expect any of this to happen. We expect it to grow all together. But, but this concept. So now my husband has died. The future that I expected going to be the actual future in my life. And I couldn't, I can't change. I have no power to change the facts of what happened. I do have the power to choose how I'm going to respond to those facts. And so coming to that understanding really helped me to, 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 you know, frame, well, what am I going to do? Right. Life, life is too short to be unhappy or live it half-heartedly or muddle along for the next 50 years and then die. Like how sad would that be? I don't want to muddle through the next 50 years and then die and then be like, yay. Saying that, like, that doesn't mean that you don't have really intense sadness and longing and fear and all of those things. But you also, at the same time, simultaneously can choose to live in, you know, with hope. And yeah, right. Exactly. And that's a really good point. And, and, and coming to realize that there doesn't have to be an either or here. Mm-hmm. I don't have to either be sad or have a good rest of my life. Yep. I don't have to either, you know, like I can, I can, I can think that it's, you know, it's sad. It's tragic that I wish he was still here, that I wish I had a magic wand, that I wish the kids still had their dad, that I would, you know, do anything to undo that. Mm-hmm. I can recognize I don't have that magic wand. So therefore, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 and I don't have to try to reconcile. You don't have to make those two things fit together. You can say it is tragic. And now I'm going to do this. Like, it, it, like 
and and it, it, I think any you know time for me trying to reconcile those things just becomes a fruitless exercise and spinning around in circles and making myself more upset. If I just recognize two things can be true, then I'm good. And uh, you know, that works for me. Um, if people have other questions or want to reach out to you, how can they, how can they find you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, my main website, jennylisk.com, J-E-N-N-Y-L-I-S-K.com. Um, everything about the book, the podcast, and the podcast, by the way, so it's called the Widowed Parent Podcast. Mm-hmm. And so it's aimed at, you know, the, the core listeners are people who are widowed parents, moms and dads who are still raising their kids and teens up through college age. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, not people who have grown adult out of the house launched children, but people are still, you know, college age and younger. Um, and it's a mix of topics week to week, sometimes grief experts or people who run programs or who've written books about anxiety and grief or about different pieces of the puzzle. Sometimes it's other widowed parents um, and I try to be conscious about having some, you know, widowed parents of little kids and teenagers and older kids to try to mix it up because there are different challenges. And then also people who, and this has been really interesting, surprisingly so, people who lost a parent when they were young, they were three or 12 or 19, and now they're 25, 35, 45, 55, and yep. they're reflecting on what their journeys were like, what they wish people had known, what they wish people had done, how it was with their school and their peers and their surviving parent and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, Because as a widowed parent, I, you know, my kids and I, we all lost the same person. His name was Dennis. I lost a spouse and they lost a dad and it's a different relationship. And it's not that one's easier or harder or better or worse. It's just different. And there's different things that are hard, you know, depending on, on, on that. So one of the things that I've tried to do and tried to do on the show is to understand the perspective of people like my kids, right? It's not like talking to other people will tell me exactly what my own children are going through because everyone's experience is different. And yet talking to all these people who are grown up now and reflecting gives me uh, a lot of things that, you know, to kind of puts things on my radar screen, right? Helps me understand their perspective better. So that has been very, a very interesting part of the show. And I think I, I've appreciated talking to them and have been glad that they've been, you know, willing to share their their experiences and reflections for the benefit of my of my listeners. Yes. And I'm learning all the time, right? On my on my show. I mean, I, 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 I take the perspective that I stand in the place of my listeners Mm-hmm. and ask questions on their behalf of whoever I'm talking with. And then I'm learning and, you know, through me, right. I mean, I'm sharing it out then on the show and everybody's cause everybody isn't going to have all these interviews themselves. Right. You just want to pull out your phone and go for a walk and put mm-hmm. on the next, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. schedule an interview with some expert or something. So anyway, but I think your question originally was where people can find me. So the podcast is on all the podcast platforms, Apple and Google and Spotify and and those good things. And I'm on social media at Lisk Jenny on all the platforms. So, and for information about the book, futurewidowbook.com is the best place to go. And there's links if you like Amazon, if you like independent bookstores, if you like Barnes and Noble, if you like eBooks, it's all there. I highly recommend all of those things. So I follow you on a lot of social media. I've listened to the podcast and read the book and I recommend it to everyone. So I hope they reach out and, and find you. So thank thank you. you Thank you the show. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Jenny for being on the show today. Join me next week when I speak with Amy Masters. She's a social worker in rural Pennsylvania. 
She shares her experience with an abortion as a young adult, and she bravely talks about her grief after that event. I hope you will join us then. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.